speaking on the issues that impact. This is the Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, ladies and gentlemen. All right, we're back. We're back. We're into the second hour of this live broadcast. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. Thank you for rejoining us. Let's go over to Layla Haitoum right now, veteran Middle East journalist based in Beirut. Uh, Layla, thank you for joining us. I know you haven't got much sleep uh, in the last 24 hours. Uh, you've been working very hard to raise awareness and to raise money to help the people and feed the people of uh, Palestine, of Gaza. You guys are running a telethon on X Twitter as well. So our hats are off to you and your colleagues. You guys are working really hard. So we appreciate you uh, joining us on this uh, this very important story. Layla, what we've witnessed over the last 24 hours with the story, uh, and it's like so many other examples since uh, October 7th, just when you thought you'd seen the worst, the worst uh, shows itself. Uh, explain to us about what's happening here. And they're calling it the flower massacre uh, right now. It's already sort of got this term attached to it. But uh, I just want to get your take on on what's happened, how and why. All right. Um, I don't know why people are surprised with this. This is not the first time that the Israeli occupation forces target civilians, unarmed Palestinian civilians, who go over to aid convoys to bring aid to their uh, families and they get shot at. This is the fourth or fifth time that we see it. However, this time is of a larger scale. And what happened, according to one of my colleagues, he's a reporter down in uh, North Gaza, he said that they received news that trucks, aid trucks, will be coming in early in the morning filled with flour. And since everybody's starving, you know, basically we have dozens of people who have died of starvation, including children. Um, people, they were so happy that there would be multiple aid trucks with loaded with the flower bags and they went over there since the morning 4 a.m in the morning because they know if they go any later they wouldn't have the chance to grab a bag and go and as you know in the north the israelis always pre-designate where the trucks park they're not allowed to go beyond a certain point so when the trucks reach that point the israelis were there ambushing people and while the people were gathered to take the flower of the trucks the israelis opened fire and killed them and we have hundreds of people who are injured and or killed, uh, including children. The sad part is that I don't know if you've seen the aftermath, the flower bags have turned red because of the blood that's basically uh, spilled uh, on top of them. The Palestinians started running everywhere and they shot them like fish in a barrel. It was an amb ambush. It's not the first time. They did it before, about three weeks uh, and a half ago, four weeks ago, um, uh, at uh, the Kuwait roundabout, when the trucks also came from south to north. The Israelis had given green light for those trucks to arrive to the north. At the beginning of the peripheries at the Warli Kuwait or Kuwait roundabout, the Israelis opened fire at the civilians, unarmed Palestinian civilians who were taking the aid, and they killed about 13 of them in one go. So this is not the first time, and the Israelis have tried to divert attention by claiming this. Remember, this propaganda came one hour later on, that uh, people were told that uh, airdrops would be happening in that area. Well, I don't know of any airdrops that had announced themselves beforehand or in a certain area. The Jordanians always dropped their aid over Tal al-Hawa, which is southwest of Gaza City, not in the center or where the car, uh, trucks park, the aid, uh, humanitarian aid trucks park. And they never announce it. They announce it after they do the airdrops. So, and they never do it early in the morning. They do it during the daytime. So all of this propaganda came out to point fingers at a certain side so people would forget that it's the Israelis who did it. Well, guess what? 
We don't buy their propaganda anymore. This is not the first time that they shoot at unarmed civilian Palestinians when they are taking aid. This is the fourth time, and this is a war crime. And we're not we're not sure how it garnered the name uh, the flower massacre, um, but uh, as you said, um, I mean, just the name in itself is horrific. If you consider the people are starving, uh, that's this. I mean, it's it it's unbelievable. Um, but put put this into context, Layla, because you know, for the last couple of weeks, we've seen the ungodly uh, uh, scene of Israelis. Uh, blocking aid deliveries, Israeli citizens or, you know, members of the public uh, blocking aid uh, uh, that's headed destined for for Gaza, saying that they don't want to allow Hamas uh, to get any of this aid. I mean, so it's all kind of being framed and any food is going to feed Hamas. Therefore, it must be blocked. Uh, I didn't see the Israeli authorities stopping these people or this went on. It's gone on for weeks. And now we have this. So the context of this seems to be this is kind of a very sort of fanatical so is it a fanaticism that we saw with settlers blocking aid uh this is you have the same fanaticism apparently with the idf shooting people going to get aid that's the only way i can kind of describe it unless they were doing something to blame it on hamas uh was this a potential false flag that went wrong or uh, or is this just insidious right right down to the bone you have to understand there are no civilians in Israel on, above the age of 18 and under the age of 62 or 65. They are all either reservists or people who had served in the army and left, or they are active army members. The settlers that were brought over to Kerm Abu Salim uh, border crossing to cut the road in the face of humanitarian aid trucks that are supposed or destined to go into Gaza, those are not innocent settlers who are protesting just because they want their loved ones to, uh, to, to be released or because they don't want aid to go into uh, Gaza to reach Hamas. The idea is that they are being protected by the Israeli occupation forces, the IOF. The Israeli occupation forces never took them out. They never cleared the roads. And that insinuates, if anything, and I wouldn't rule it out, that the Israeli occupation forces were the ones who brought them, and they're using them as an excuse for the aid trucks not to go in. Remember, for almost four months and a half, the Israelis have derailed the entry of those trucks via the Rafah border crossing and the Kerm Abu Salim border crossing. For those who think that basically Egypt controls its border crossing, it doesn't. It has it open from its side. However, the trucks that enter from there, they have to divert uh, and go right all the way up 150 meters, where they have to stop by an Israeli checkpoint, hand searched by the Israelis and derailed for the longest time. And then the Israelis allow the trucks or they don't allow it to go into Gaza or not. So the idea is that Everything that goes through the border crossings, be it Rafah or be it Kerem Abu Salem, is controlled by, by the Israeli occupation forces. Now, we've seen thus the number of uh, trucks dwindle over the past four months and a half. Now they allow five trucks in, and then sometimes for a whole week, nothing gets in. Then they allow 100 in, and they don't allow anything in. So it has nothing to do with the settlers only, but also the Israeli occupation forces, which points out to the fact that they are in league together to derail any aid from coming in to starve the Palestinians. Prior to October 7, the Israelis were putting the Palestinians on a diet calorie. They only allowed about 500 trucks to get in. That's prior to October 7. And the 500 trucks had to cater to all of Gaza Strip. And that's why almost half of the population of the Gaza Strip was anemic until October 7. And now 500 trucks, which were not enough back in October 7, before October 7, now, 
they're giving them 10 trucks a day, one truck a day. Sometimes they allow in 100, but that has to cater to what? The first batch that, that, that takes it are the 1.4 million people who are gathered in Rafah. Nothing reaches the north, barely anything reaches central Gaza. So they have been starving the Palestinians on purpose, and that's another war crime. You know, this this uh, incident is just emblematic of uh, all the abuses and the collective punishment uh, that we've just gotten used to seeing. But this is just so insidious how this has been engineered, this uh, situation. And one hopes, Layla, that, you know, uh, the international media or some of these leading Western countries or, you know, UN Security Council countries, if they have any conscience at all, uh, to look at this situation and say, really, this is just... This this really should be the straw that breaks the camel's back, this type of an incident. Uh, we haven't seen the full fallout from it yet as it reverberates slowly uh, through the mainstream media. We might maybe get a think piece by the New York Times next week saying, ah, we think this is a really horrible event that happened here, uh, which is kind of putting the pieces together, of course. But if you watch uh, social media, uh, Layla, yourself and others, uh, there's, there's not much question as to what happened here. But it seems like you've got this delayed reaction constantly with the uh, mainline media, this kind of reticent to kind of call it out for what it is immediately. They like to sit and wait, be patient. You worked in press and media for many years, Layla. What, 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 how, why the restraint? Why the restraint uh, by all of these journalists who have full access to the data and the facts to make a, a, a good enough conclusion as to what went on? What's, what's holding them all back? Um, almost every other international media outlet that I had worked for or worked with as a freelancer, as a fixer, as an employee, they always had these red lines of not pointing the blame against the Israelis, even if the Israeli is standing there shooting the person right on camera, they wouldn't blame them. And I'll give you an example. My dear friend, the late Isam Abdullah, Reuters videographer who was shot and killed by the Israelis back on October 13th. Reuters took seven weeks to do an investigation to understand who killed him and why he was killed and where he was killed. Whereas from the first hour, he was assassinated by the Israelis. He was with a group of journalists on the ground. They were all wearing flag jackets in an open area that you cannot mistake them for anything at all. They were media people. They all worked with international media outlets. They were shelled twice by an Israeli tank that's across the blue line. And I had picked the phone that day, spoke with my sources at Unifil because I had worked with the United Nations and trained forces in Lebanon in the past. And I spoke also with the Lebanese army. The shell was Israeli. It came from an Israeli tank. I directly wrote it online. Reuters, which has all the sources in the world, they took seven weeks to do an investigation just to delay the public anger. And then they announced after that that the Israelis killed him when they could have easily done it the first hour by just calling the right sources, the official sources on the record. That's one thing. Same thing goes for this massacre. You've heard what Ursula von der Leyen basically had said, that this merits, uh, this is really sad, etc. it's a tragic, and that it merits an investigation. Why an investigation? Because it drags on and it absorbs people's anger and feelings. By the time that they announced the results, people would have subsided their anger at one point, and they are now concentrating on something else or something new. That's the first thing. The second thing, the international media tries to cover up for Israeli crimes. I'm not going to bank on what New York Times or anybody else next week will issue. We already know who killed him. We saw the drone 
for the uh, shooting basically covering the whole area. It was an Israeli drone. The Israelis were the ones who released the footage. That's one thing. And at the same time, they always do it when there is media blackout. It was at night, really early dawn, which is really pitch dark. They committed a massacre. And as usual, they are not that smart. Data that came out from their side showed that they were the ones monitoring and shooting. So at the end of the day, what kind of an investigation do you want? What kind of an investigation do you want when you have the Israeli drones that are armed going after people and shooting and killing them? And we've got this uh, this clip from Sky News uh, in the UK. We're going to roll this clip, and they're they're just umming and eyeing, as you said, uh, Leila. Uh, you know, being careful not to lay the blame at uh, uh, certain countries' feet uh, for what is kind of quite obvious as to what we're looking at here. And then they're going over the footage, but let's roll this clip and uh, we'll we'll get your reaction to this uh, afterwards. But uh, yeah, go ahead and roll this. This is the flower yes, massacre. So Initially, in Gaza. It was the, there was a stampede that caused loads of people to die. Then there was a suggestion that a truck had actually driven by a civilian driver had mown down a load of the Palestinians. Then there was a suggestion that. There Actually, this was potentially Hamas stealing the aid. I mean, seriously. I mean, there, there you, as you said, Layla, right there on global, you know, satellite news, right there. They try to cover up. They try to run propaganda, and then they try to blame anybody but them. And then they try to issue one lie after the other. And every single time we debunk their lies, they come up with a new lie. Well, guess what? I do expect that they will commit other massacres that will make people forget about this one and just their attentions be diverted towards some, something else. This is not the first time they target civilians, as I said. This is not the first time they target civilians this way, where civilians gather to collect aid, humanitarian aid, and they use people's need to ambush them and kill them. The utmost evil you can see in the world is when starving people who have to go and fetch humanitarian aid for their children gets ambushed and killed. It's a war crime under international law when you target and murder civilians. It's a crime under international law. It's a war crime. It's a war crime. And uh, I and Leila, I know you 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 were uh, you were discussing this uh, to your colleagues uh, earlier today. And I was uh, listening to part of it, but you're talking about your experience with the 2006 uh, war between Hezbollah uh, and the IDF and the types of tactics that the Israelis were using back then uh, and just the, the viciousness of it. Uh, just give us uh, your, your recount of that situation as you recall it. Uh, I think they were hitting uh, crops, they were targeting uh, civilians with cluster bombs and all sorts of things. But uh, can you comment on on that situation as an example of the, the, the lengths which Israel has gone in the past to sort of, I don't know, just kind of make people suffer? Yeah, I mean, um, I can start with growing up. Back in 1996, when they committed the first Kano massacre, the Israelis targeted the United Nations Interim Forces uh, base where hundreds of civilians mostly women and children and elderly were bombed and killed. Hundreds of people died during that massacre, mainly children and later on women as well. And the United Nations interim forces, they have a big UN unifil on their, any of their bases in South Lebanon. And they had impunity, the Israelis had impunity over that. They repeated the same thing in 2006. And unlucky for them, I was a reporter at the time and I was on the ground. They committed another massacre. They bombarded Kana again and they killed hundreds of civilians. And they didn't stop over there. They also killed four 
UNIFIL observers, including a, a Chinese and a Canadian and a French, if I remember correctly, four, four different nationalities. Three belong to the First World War, uh, world, uh, First World, I mean, because they consider us Third World, right? At any point. And then towards the end, towards the end of the 34 days of Israeli aggression on Lebanon, it wasn't a war between Hezbollah and Israel as the Israeli occupation forces try to insinuate. It was an Israeli aggression. They had been planning that aggression for the longest time and they just needed an excuse and we have all the documents to prove that we have all the documents to prove that i was monitoring the southern lebanese front for almost eight eight months i was the one who told hezbollah secretary general said hassan nasrallah that don't you think it's a setup by the israelis they have been moving all their divisions to the southern front for the past eight months so they might use anything as an excuse it was live on camera when i asked him that but to for, let's put that on the side and go to the cluster bombs issue the last days the last day of the Israeli aggression, the Israelis sprayed South Lebanon with 1.5 million cluster bombs. And they sprayed olive groves and banana fields. Why? Because during that time, Lebanon had won an award by the European Union to export citrus fruits. Uh, sorry, it's not olive groves, it's citrus uh, groves. So to export citrus groves, uh, basically uh, citrus fruits to the European Union, the contender were, were the Israelis and they lost that contract. What did they do? They sprayed all the citrus uh, fields with cluster bombs, and they sprayed also the mountains and the valleys of uh, dozens of Lebanese villages. And they refused to hand over the uh, bombardment uh, sites to the United Nations Supreme Forces and to the Lebanese army. Two winters had passed after they sprayed the whole area with cluster bombs, and then they later on handed over the maps. And why did the Lebanon and the United Nations ask for those maps? So they can go and clear the areas before winter comes. We had mudslides, we had winds, we had rain, shifting the position of those cluster bombs. And as a consequence of that, we had dozens of farmers, dozens of villages, children, uh, shepherds, and even cattle losing limbs, losing their lives because of those cluster bombs. No, no, and I can uh, I can vouch for that as well. I did a report uh, while I was in Lebanon on that very issue, and that the some of them look like toys, you know, they're like shiny yes. red plastic, orange, so the children might pick them up in fields. This is going on for decades after the fact, isn't it? it in fact, they, they they haven't fully been cleared all these years later, have they? They're still finding them, still looking for them. Well, um, the United Nations Interim Forces and other um actors on the ground, including the Lebanese army, try to clear as many as possible. But you have to understand the unexploded ordinance or UXOs continue to be found in southern Lebanon in certain areas. You can't uh, at any point uh, go to certain areas because they tell you there's possibility of minefields or cluster bombs. So you have to be very careful. And some of them are small enough to be as big as an AA battery. So the idea is that children would pick anything that's shiny on the ground. And the cattle would walk and tread uh, along the road one times, two times, and then the, the, the mud would slide and then it clears up for, for to reveal the unexploded ordnance underneath it. And the next time the cattle pass from there, they die. And you have to understand this is the livelihood of some of the southern Lebanese uh, villagers and farmers. Yeah, in a really unbelievable situation. Uh... So, look, we've got this situation, which is continuing uh, as well. Just before we break, Leila, we'll go to break in just a moment uh, before we let you go. Uh, uh, is there anything uh, significant happening on the, the southern Lebanese front uh, between the IDF and Hezbollah? Certainly, there's a lot of uh, eyes on this area right now, but uh, your thoughts before we go. Uh, 
Um, well, we have seen a kind of the tit for tat continues. So it's kind of a trenches war still. However, with the recent Israeli escalation against Lebanese uh, civilians, they killed two elderly, uh, an elderly couple, basically a man and his wife, in the town of Kafra, and they killed, uh, they almost killed, nearly killed a whole family by dropping uh, a missile on their house, and that was called caught live on camera. Little child was actually filming a live broadcast with his friends when the missile went literally exploded in the room next uh, next to him and basically he it was caught on camera so the israelis when they claimed that this was um, a hezbollah facility the camera exposed them again they cannot lie forever that's the thing you can lie to some of the people some of the all the time you can lie to all of the people some of the time but you can't lie to all of the people all of the time hezbollah retaliated and so far we've seen four strikes that includes basically strikes next to haifa strikes um, deep into uh, the uh, occupied Palestinian territories on the northern front, and um, they fell six kilometers away uh, from uh, uh, from the energy or basically oil refineries that the Israelis have over there. And it's a message from Hezbollah to tell them, next time we can hit it. It reminds me of the same scenario back in 2006 when Hezbollah bombed next to the chemical factory in um, a facility in northern uh, occupied Palestine. And that was a message to the Israelis. We can hit your facilities, but we're trying to shun uh, the civilians any harm. However, this time, the rules of the game has changed. Hezbollah has announced blood for blood. And that means civilians for civilians, army for an army, and an expansion of war if the Israelis want to. Now we're waiting for strike five. I was speaking to one of, the day before yesterday, I, was, I spoke to one of my sources and he had told me, expect strike four soon. And I thought, oh, maybe in 48 hours, less than 24 hours, which was yesterday, they did a strike that was uh, six kilometers away from the oil refineries. And now we, we were told, wait for strike number five. So the Israelis are waiting. We saw an attack against Haifa, but when we asked the source, he said, no, this is not strike number five. So let the Israelis wait. Yeah, and that's quite significant in the port of Haifa. Uh, it's one of the sort of key infrastructural points uh, for the Israeli government. So when that comes under threat, what's next? Uh, things are going to get uh, probably more tense uh, in the coming days and weeks. Leila Haitoum, we really appreciate you joining us here on TNT Today's News Talk. Veteran journalist based in Beirut, much appreciated. Thank you for your time. There she goes, ladies and gentlemen. Leila Haitoum. We want to follow her on X Twitter as well. Uh, we've got her ID, her account uh, on our show page and our show post as well at uh, at 21 Wire on our Twitter account. I'm Patrick Engineer, your host. We'll be right back.